We have Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the bewildering of new movies, either by, starring or about pop stars. You know, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified.com. And this week I've been joined by... Ben Perlmer, a training and consultancy business manager in healthcare. I always feel slightly inferior when I introduce you and, you know, you've done that and I've, uh, well, I've, I've mainly just sort of written about films. Still, still living. <laughs> comparable, absolutely comparable. <laughs> well, it was too late to tag on an Avengers-style post-credit sequence, but just two months after the US release of this week's film, Get On Up, Chadwick Boseman was announced to play Black Panther in the Marvel film of the same title, and so began the fastest ascent to legendary status an actor has enjoyed since James Dean. As far as superheroes go, though, he'd already played one larger-than-life character in a cape with a whole X-Men battalion full of aliases, Mr Dynamite, the godfather of soul, the hardest working man in show business, James Brown. That biopic, Get On Up, is the subject of today's episode. And I just want to start off by asking, what would you say you look for in a biopic? Oh, good question. Mm. Um, I would say I, I like I like a biopic to be p- pretty, pretty accurate. Mm. I think that's probably the the, the, the one thing I liked because I don't I don't like to see something that I actually really enjoy and um and, and be you know be shocked by or, or or really resonate with only to then I'm 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 the typical I'm gonna search Google for this now because I need to know that this is true. Yeah <laughs> um, yeah I don't want to be moved in that way only to then find out that actually um, it's it's not right. So I, I like it to be accurate, and and then whilst I'm watching or afterwards when I go down the rabbit hole, you know, read a little bit more into it, understand the context a little bit more, or all hmm. those type of things. See, I, I think it's kind of a trade-off. I mean, on the one hand, I think a biopic should work just like any standard story, and there's a part of me that says, you know if I would watch this and be satisfied with it, even if this story was completely fictional, it works. But on the other hand, I I kind of like stories that are a bit stranger than fiction as well. You know, I think my gold standard for a biopic is probably, have you ever seen Tim Burton's film, Ed Wood? No, I haven't. I have heard good things about it, though. Edward is absolutely my favourite Tim Burton film uh, and just a wonderful film altogether. But it has that balance where if you were sitting down to write a fiction screenplay, you wouldn't write this. 
it is too strange. But if, if for some reason you were writing it, I'd like to think that you would structure it this way and end it at this point, because it has a satisfying fictional shape, mm. which I think, I mean, I had seen Get Up, Get On Up before, and I remember when I saw it, my main two reactions were, hey, that guy playing James Brown is really good. I'm really looking forward to what he does next. Yeah. Uh, two, this screenplay structure is driving me up the wall. Right. Hmm. Right, interesting. And and just on that, did you see Get On Up uh, before or after, I suppose, um, Black Panther or, or, or even a, a previous work? It was definitely before Black Panther. I was yeah. trying to piece it together. I think by the time it came out in the UK, I knew that he had been cast to play Black Panther and I'd seen the mm. press about that. But that was 2014. At that point, he hadn't even done the sort of supporting appearance that he has in Captain America Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just interesting, isn't it? Because I, I came at the... I came from the different side. So my first introduction to him as an actor is, um, you know, um, it's the Marvel civil war. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Civil war, black Panther. And then, and so then seeing this, um, it was really interesting to, I suppose, see just such a different side to his, his repertoire, if you like, um, mm. and how he plays this, this sort of character. It is kind of interesting because I, I remember thinking about Bozeman's screen persona a lot after he died, uh, partly because I guess during his life I thought, well, I don't know what Chadwick Bozeman film is yet because he's, he's just starting, you know, yeah. we'll figure that out later and then you realise that's not going to happen. Uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting that this biopic, which is on the one hand saying, he is a great man of the music industry, a great recording legend. It's also kind of the least sympathetic character Chadwick Boseman's ever played, really. That's a really, yeah, really, really good point. Yeah, he's uh, he probably. <laughs> I, I was um, when I was watching. I watched it again last night, and um, it, you don't see an ounce of, of like you say, just empathy in the mm. character until the until the very end and even then at the very end you are thinking is he meaning to be um like this is he actually saying this you know there's that moment i think um towards the end with uh bobby bird um mm. and you think it's so because it, it, you, you can't believe it because you've, you've basically just watched two hours of of like you say just un you know relentless um <laughs> uh a, a character that that just goes through life thinking you know thinking about himself and and so dedicated to his craft and yeah. and, and what he does there's this push pull where sometimes you think that absolute single mindedness of james brown is really admirable i mean obviously he wouldn't be as good a performer or a recording artist if he didn't have that but as you say, it does spill over into active mistreatment of a lot of people mm. in his life. Yeah, he, I, I, I got the sense um, the film um, portrayed James Brown to be someone who, if he didn't believe in himself one hundred percent or to the to the most he possibly could, mm. he he would, I suppose. Um, 
opened the floodgates as to what his life was you know the 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 all the you know the the early neglect and and poverty that he grew up in um you know the, the moment he kind of comes down from that i am james brown and referring even to james brown in the in the third person the moment that, that even if if there was a tiny crack in the surface surface of that there would be you know almost a breakdown it, 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 that's how it feels to me because just the this just the conditions in which he grew up in and, and was around in, in those days would just be too much for any any person or human to, to deal with. I think that's probably true. And I wish the film had made the point as, as clearly as you just have, because I think one of the problems I have with the non-linear structure, which is usually, usually absolutely my thing in movies i'm a huge yeah. nicholas roeg fan you know i love any film that has kind of a flashback structure or messes about with linear storytelling in any kind of interesting way this time it just didn't work for me and i think if it was done in chronological order you'd have two things happening firstly that you'd start off with the childhood stuff, which is really mm. good. I think mm, the yeah. childhood material is fantastic. Uh, but also you would get that sense of unease as it went on. At first you would you would watch the childhood stuff and you'd be horrified for him and you'd be happy when he started to make it big. And then you would recognise that his later behaviour was really the kind of buried trauma from that mm sort of working itself out whereas in this movie you've got all these maddening cuts like there's that one scene where he's a, he's taping a, a christmas special for frankie avalon's show yes which is a very funny scene and it has perhaps the funniest line in the film where he says he's in the middle of a honky hole down <laughs> but that has just come off the back of a scene where he's ran away from his abusive father and you think not quite ready for the giggle yet you know give me some space yeah yeah i i i couldn't agree more with that actually I, it was chaotic wasn't it mm. it was it was I, I didn't know where i was when the scene changed have i changed to a different time am i before you know he got big am i after he got big am i at what part of james brown's life are we currently looking at um mm. and it it, it, it was yeah and i think that's probably because as it goes back to that early childhood stuff it seems to hit some points um you know i can't remember the dates off the top of my head but for example it might be 1968 then it goes down to the 1950s then down into the um, childhood stuff and then starts to work itself back up through the years then doesn't it mm, so yeah. it touches on a couple of points coming down and then on multiple points going back up and so you're trying to piece that together as to where um you know where we're actually looking at and and for me and for me i wanted to know like like you're saying there i wanted to know what was he like when he was first coming through you know what then mm. did he become and and was actually um how much did the childhood stuff impact his early career how much did the um the, the, just the, the undeniable talent and reception that he was getting in his early career impact on who he became in the middle part and towards the end of his career as well and because of, of the timeline i don't think you were able to get to get a sense of that as, as much. Um, yeah, as it, it doesn't flow and it has to resort to an awful lot of 
sort of things like, you know, again, if it was done chronologically, uh, you could have shown him in, I forget what the name of the group that he was briefly in at the start, something like the, the Fabulous Flames or something like that. Something like that, but less camp sounding, I think, is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it could have shown you him joining them and then him sort of moving past that and then becoming his backing group. And you would have understood the story, whereas uh, this has like a scene where a reporter goes, so you started off in a vocal group and you think, come on, man, you're, you're screenwriters. You know there's an easier way to do this. And yeah. the, the weirdest thing is, this is written by Jez and John Henry Butterworth, who... I mean, Jess Butterworth certainly is one of the hottest playwrights in Britain at the moment. His his play, Jerusalem, uh, which starred Mark Rylance, was a massive success in the West End. It transferred to Broadway and was just as big a mm. success there. And you look at this and you think, is it just that he's unfamiliar with film form? Is it just that he's writing this stuff and he can't quite envisage what the effect will be of cutting from like 1930s uh, South Carolina to like California in the 70s that he doesn't get that because he's he's a creature of the theatre I don't know yeah yeah it was it was famous flames I just had a quick famous picture. flames that famous was it flames. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I got the sense that what 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 they were trying to achieve is you know what contributed to the James Brown that we know today. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, you know what, what a what a way to open um, the <laughs> yes. film. I, I, thought, I thought, wow, you know, we're straight into it here. Um, and like the I say, then is, I, it's I, kind of like the dog day afternoon of fun <laughs> biopics, isn't it? It's absolutely. I, I was extra. I was thinking, um, is this something from Quentin Tarantino that I'm watching here? <laughs> Is <laughs> is is incredibly calm whilst walking around with a shotgun yes. um, in a group of people. I'm thinking, I'm I'm, I'm sure I've, I've tuned into the right film. Um, so yeah, that you know that intrigues you, and and it almost kind of goes right. This is this is James Brown. You're watching a film about James Brown. Can you believe this is James Brown? Yeah. And yeah. now we're going to show you, you know what built up to this point. And you know, I think I think the idea was a was a commendable one. I just don't think that they executed it very well. Um, mm. You know, as as we've said, just the chaotic nature of of touching on on different times before getting back to to that more linear chronological progression. Yeah, and I think if you're going to do something like this, you really have to be a very very skilled visual stylist as a director. You know, again, taking it back to Nick Roeg, there are parts of a film like. Don't look now, or the man who fell to mm. earth, that you understand because you can see the repeated images and repeated compositions, and it just clicks in your brain. And that carries you through the moments where the narrative is, is not very clear on paper. I yeah. don't think Tate Taylor, you know, who, who has made some perfectly successful films that people have enjoyed very much, but he, he is not that guy, really. Mm. He's not doing a bad job, but he's not doing the the kind of job you have to do to make this kind of project work. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. And 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 like I say, just just from that from that beginning point, I think it goes to the to the show where he's on with the Rolling Stones. Mm. You know, a, a massive point in his career. They get that out of the way pretty quickly. I think then they go to the 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he could then go to the Vietnam um, oh, show that he yeah. did and then into the into the plane. So they, they, are, they are climbing down, mm. going backwards. I think then they go to the early life and then build it back up. And, and I think to do that, you need to be able to be so to be so engrossed and um, enjoy those moments before you get to early childhood life. And then almost like the ah moments, you know, the mm, kind of, yeah. ah, that's why we saw him at the beginning of the uh, film. That fits now, that makes sense. And I just, I just never got that. It didn't really make sense to me until we were at a point where we could then see the progression and the moment. Yeah. I think that Vietnam scene, um, uh, I'm very glad you raised that because that is one of the things that hit big uh, now that I'm watching it in retrospect because I absolutely found it incredibly easy to disconnect Chadwick Boseman's James Brown from Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa, but the Vietnam stuff is so much like The Five Bloods. It's, right. it's really weird watching it now. And I've I've been kind of timid about rewatching Five Bloods because, as a friend pointed out to me, Mark Harrison, who is often on this podcast, Chadwick Boseman's character in that movie already represents like lost potential and lost life, and you think how much is that going to hurt rewatching it now he's actually yeah, dead? Yeah, of course, of course, of course. I I, I mean. It, we, we couldn't talk about him without, without touching upon that, could we? It, mm. What a shock. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, what an absolute, and, 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 and somebody who, who 100%, in my opinion, was at the start of his career. And, and you, look at, you look at him, how he was in, in the Avengers stuff and the Marvel stuff, but, but also, you know, his back catalogue like this mm. and just the different things that he was able um, to bring to the table as an actor. And you thought, you know, this is, a, this is someone on... On a trajectory to to stardom, um, you know, some there were there were plenty of main character roles in some big big films. I think um, mm. that were were, go, were going to to come in the future. Then, as we're recording this, he's just won a posthumous Golden Globe. Uh, the smart money is on him repeating that trick at the Oscars for Marini's Black Bottom. Uh, it. Yeah, it, it's 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 still a, a death that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, mm. it's still mm. an astonishing thing to think about. Yeah, um, and, I, and I believe and I believe towards the end, he was even working whilst he was ill, wasn't he? Um, I believe that he was he was still day in day out, you know, trying to trying to battle through what he had to battle through, and and still turning up and and doing the thing that he loved and. I think that's why it was, again, such a shock. There wasn't a, a, a long period of time where anyone knew anything was... was mm. No, no, he kept it absolutely like limited to his closest circle mm. right up until his death. And you think, I mean, the, the psych, I don't want to sort of play down the psychological demands of it, but the physical demands of it floor me. That yeah. if it's someone who's made like three Marvel movies and a Spike Lee Vietnam War movie while he is dying of cancer. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you put it like that, especially, you think, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. astounding, isn't it? Absolutely astounding, and and nothing, and nothing but admiration. Um, and and only, only, God knows, just what was going through his mind at the time. Mm. Um, but you should look upon all of those, uh, you know, all of those films and the work he did in those 
it's flawless. Um, hmm. and, and and so to, again, you know, whether he was thinking this is this is what I'm going to leave, this is my legacy, this is this is what is um, is going to be re- I'm going to be remembered by. Who knows? But he, he certainly did a lot to remember him by, which is which was yeah. Really good. I think it must have, when you have a disease like cancer, which works so slowly and gives you so much time to reflect, I think there must be part of you that is thinking in terms of, all right, say, you know, say it happens tomorrow, what have I left? You know, what can I do yeah. that's more than that? You start to look at your own mortality in a, in a totally different way, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it, it, you know, when it happens, as I've said earlier, it made me look back at his career and try and work out what the the sort of threads of it are. What, because I, I do honestly believe that in thirty, forty years, people will be like talking about a Chadwick Boseman movie as as being something that means something. It's something that is recognisable. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I've I've not seen. I've not seen him in a film yet that I've, I've not been impressed by his character or um, and, and the bit and the biggest compliment I can give him is I always I always find that if if as a as an actor you're able to to portray different types of characters and mm. um, from a range of different films and immediately I don't just spend the entire film going you're the guy from Black Panther. Um, which is <laughs> you know, quite easily done, isn't it? It's, it's so it's, easily done with so a film that done. size, and yeah. you know, with, with with the Marvel movies, and I suppose with anything that's on that scale, you feel like it's bubbled into your head about like ten months before it's released. And uh, I had never read a Black Panther comic before that movie came out. And I felt like by the time it was released, you know, I could probably give you a pretty good posit history of how the (laughs) character was created because it it just gets everywhere. So as you say, to be able to put that down completely, to not think about Wakanda at all when you're watching Get On Up is really something. Yeah, yeah. The the biggest compliment you can give, I think. Mm. I think the other one of the other interesting things about Boseman is how often his screen work keeps going back to African subject matter. I mean, most obviously in Black Panther and its uh, it, its relatives, but also in something like A Message to the King, which is a, a kind of a it's an all right movie. It's like a little vigilante thriller they did on Netflix pretty soon after he was first cast as Black Panther. But it is so unusual in that he is playing a South African character and he didn't have to play a South African character. And I suspect most American filmmakers would have rather he didn't and would rather have had, you know, a character which is more tried and tested in that genre of movie. But he did that. And I think it it seems like I don't know exactly how that'll be remembered, but it feels like something that was very different and radical compared with how previous generations of African-American film stars presented themselves. I think they could have even done a bit with it in here because one of James Brown's biggest concerts was at the Rumble in the Jungle, the Ali versus Foreman boxing match in Zaire. Uh, which I was, I think if the film had maybe come out a few years later, 
and there was more of a sense of what a Chadwick Boseman movie was, someone would have said, all right, we've got to take him to Zaire. Yeah, that's a big thing, but it isn't in there, sadly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I, I came to the film knowing quite little. So I did mm. my usual, oh, that was that was a fantastic film and I, I really enjoyed that. And I want to know more about, you know, James Brown. So you start doing a little bit of digging. And I was actually quite surprised. I was like, oh, that's, that's a that's a massive part of somebody's career, surely. Um, so, it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite interesting to me that they decided to leave that part out of... Yeah, there is a whole documentary I should point out called Soul Power by Jeff Levy Hint, which is about that concert and all of the ah. various acts who played it. So uh, if anyone is interested in that, that's certainly worth seeking out. I think I'll be doing that myself. Mm. Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, his, his screen career is, is quite an odd one. I suppose it's... Um, Sometimes when you make a biopic of someone, you have to kind of take into account all of the indelible screen appearances they've made. I'll put it this way, I don't envy the person who has to make the authorised David Bowie film that you know is going to happen <laughs> at some point. Uh, but Brown has not so many of those. He has some notable soundtracks. He did the soundtrack to Black Caesar, which is one of the tougher of the first wave of black exploitation films in the 70s. He's had a very memorable cameo in uh, the Blues Brothers, of course, mm -hmm. and who should turn up here but Dan Aykroyd as his manager. Yeah, yeah, Dan Aykroyd, what, a, what an actor. Um... I really enjoyed seeing him. I cannot remember the last time I'd seen Dan Aykroyd like, have a substantial role in a movie before this. And I was really cheered to see him. I think he brings something to that that no one else could. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, actually, I'd probably going back to what we mentioned at the very beginning about um, you know James Brown, the character showing empathy and mm. being empathetic, it's probably probably that part of the film that you actually see some emotion, you know, mm. from from James Brown and from you know having to having to bury his. A long time friend. Yeah. 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 I think part of the reason why Aykroyd works in that role is that by that point, you have seen Brown with Little Richard, uh, who's played very well, I must say, by yes. Brandon Michael Smith. And it, it is a fine attempt to imitate the inimitable, in my opinion. Um, but Little Richard has warned him that, look, as soon as you get into the music industry, you're going to be surrounded by a lot of greedy white men who just want to mm. rip you off sideways. And you listen to that and you think, yeah, he's right. But there's a part of you that as soon as Dan Aykroyd turns up, you think, maybe in his heyday you'd cast Dan Aykroyd to play a bastard. But now yeah. when he hasn't yeah. worked for so long, there is so much affection towards him you know he carries such a nostalgic weight oh. you kind of feel reassured to see him as soon as he turns up I think yeah he does he does he, because because they obviously say that so early on and then all of a sudden within within a few few scenes that's exactly mm. the position he finds himself in so you you're immediately mistrusting of everybody that um, yeah 
he comes across out here, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there, this is what's going to happen. It's written on the wall, and um, it was a it was a pleasant surprise to 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 learn and to find that you know actually the relationship was a very uh, one of mutual respect, uh, love, um, and probably probably as as the as the scene of him burying. Um, Dan Aykroyd's character was going on. I was starting to think to myself, probably the only father figure, uh, father figure um, that James Brown ever ever had to to a certain extent. Um, you know whether whether or not you could go that far as to say a father figure, but but somebody certainly a a, a male to look up to. And a, and I think a male there's to... someone in it, something in it. Yeah, I mean he's one of the few people in the music industry who thinks that James Brown can operate with greater creative control than mm. other people are willing to give him, which is a running theme of the movie. And he, you know, one of his positive aspects, one of the things that makes him a character you stay with is that he is very savvy business-wise. And when he mm. explains how his records are promoted, I did sort of think, did James Brown invent the idea of going viral? <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. What? there might be something in that actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When he's talking about, um, even when he, he, we're talking about the uh, promotion of his own um, concerts, so, yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, knowing the influencers at the time, um, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. the, the radio stations. I'll get into the people that that need it the most and and want to to know it the most. Um, you know, ask ask uh, ask the people on the on the streets on the ground to uh, to promote it and to spread the spread the message. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of parallels that you can um, bring in there. Mm. But that's um, the father, the the actual father he has that you mentioned is played by Lenny James, very good British actor. Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason why I like the childhood scenes so much is it's partly because I think they have a sense of like atmosphere and place that the rest of the movie doesn't really have. But also it is where the cast is at its more spectacular. I mean, you've got Viola Davis, who mm. of course is also in Marini's Black Bottom as his mother. You've got Octavia Spencer as his aunt. I mean, it's it, it's it's kind of a problem that the people I most want to see Chadwick Boseman interact with are the people who were only really there for the start of the movie, for the childhood portions. Yeah, yeah, and and those 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 childhood portions, um, you know how how nonchalantly they um, had him pulling the shoes off a off a off of a hanging man. Yes, um, yeah, and saving those shoes until he was big enough to to fit into them, you know, like they were his prized possession. Uh, yeah. Just little things like that, that actually didn't get too much time when, when you compare the, the length of the film, but just really hit, there were some just real, real moments in those early scenes that just hit home, you know, the relationship between his mother and father, the, 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 the scene that I just mentioned with the shoes, the, the box, the boxing scene was, Absolutely. Boxing scene is one of the few moments where I think the non-chronological style really worked because that comes just after Little Richard's given him this warning yeah. and you see this crowd of white men arranging this really ghoulish kids boxing match where a lot of black kids beat each other up and you think 
finally a cut that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That added a bit of context, a bit of um, a bit absolutely of meat to the to the understanding of um, of James Brown, the person, the man. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just a just a harrowing scene. It was it was really. I just found it very disturbing watching it, um, and and knowing full and I think it's because knowing full well that this is this is something that happened um, yeah. often and was seen as, you know, yeah, and, and especially because you have the, um, the the band playing made up mainly of, of black males, and then you've got the you know like you say just a bunch of white people overlooking this, and you know those those band mem- members having to watch young black children you know hit each other for, for yeah. sport and for, for fun whilst they're supposed to be playing a an upbeat you know jazzy tune um yeah there was just something and and and, and i think as well actually it was a, a really good scene because the music did not fit with the scene and the images that you were being shown hmm. you know and, and music has that effect doesn't it it's, it's it has that effect to make you feel and have the mood in which the the music is is played in. So, so you're hearing the music at the beginning. It's nice and it's upbeat. It's 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 lovely. And then you're seeing something uh, you know, horrible unfold before your eyes as well, and you you're conflicted immediately. And and some of the best uses of music in cinema history are the ones that are counterintuitive and are the ones that work against the. Uh, more obvious emotional context of the scene. I mean, we mentioned Tarantino earlier. That's his mm. career, basically. That's <laughs> yeah. what he does. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did think that was terrific. I think there are things in it that are really good, but I think even mm. when you are in the middle of a scene like that that is really strong and really disturbing and really surprising and full of unexpected detail, you are always aware that you're going to get pulled out of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the movie's attitude towards what it sets up is very strange. It's like there's a whole bit with Tika Sumpter who sort of comes on board the the tour bus and she's one of the backing singers. She's playing Yvonne Fair and everyone speculates about how, oh, James is going to be around her and in real life he was and she was the mother of one of his children and she co-wrote I Got You, you know, one of the signature songs. All of this I found out by looking it up because mm. after that one scene, I think Tika Sumpter is only just like in the background while people sing for a bit. There's no, it, it, it's a character that's given a massive build-up and then it's just dropped. Whereas by contrast, Jill Scott as Dee Dee, his second wife, is just like thrown in there. It's like he, you've got used to one wife and then he, he comes back home and it's like, well, has his wife regenerated while he's out? What's happened? Yeah, yeah it's, it, I, I, I couldn't agree more because I, I was actually wondering what had happened. So, so, so somebody coming to it fresh and, and not really knowing too much about James Brown's life. And, uh, you know, there is that scene where they come on the tour bus and I'm thinking, right, okay, this is a main character. They've given some yeah. dedicated screen time to this person. I am, go- well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to know this person and understand where they fit into James Brown's life. And I think after, straight after, they go to being on stage and he's, he's singing a song and he looks over to her and she's giving the eyes back and she's singing along as well. And then he falls over, uh, looks up and the camera pans to his second wife, <laughs> and then from there on in, that's the one that you see. And you're like, you're thinking to yourself, well, 
what about her? What what just happened, you know, to that character? And, and afterwards, totally the same as yourself, I was just going, what what, what happened? <laughs> Did yeah. I miss something? There's something being entirely cut out. It, it seems like it's like there's maybe been about 20 minutes in there and they've just gone, no, actually, we're going to have to cut that, but we can't leave this person out. So we'll just... <laughs> just make a little nod to her yeah um, absolutely and you know people we, we were talking earlier about accuracy in films based on true events and i know some people sort of look very askance at this practice of taking like three characters and merging them into one say oh why do you have to do that like, well this is why otherwise yeah. the film just becomes a conveyor belt of important people coming on for one scene yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good point, actually. It's a really good point because it, it did it did more damage having that bit in there mm. than than it did if you wouldn't have had had them in at all. Uh, I hate that I'm arguing for a Tika Sumpter performance to hit the cutting room floor because I think she's very underrated. She's very good in uh, The Old Man and the Gun alongside Robert Redford yeah. and Sissy Spacek. But um, it's just a really distracting scene and it never pays off or anything no i know and and you you start to think about how you had had those little nods been taken out fully um mm. and you just have him fall into the you imagine the filming falling to the floor looking at um his wife that goes on to be a bit more um in the in the film and you, yeah i think it would have made for a much better watching i suppose that the general problem that i have is it's not just that these things go by fast it's not just that the presentation is confusing a lot you know these are problems it's that the cumulative effect is that i do not really know what tate taylor and the butterworths think about james brown mm. like at a late stage you see him getting into civil rights activism and recording say it loud i'm black and i'm proud with like this really beaming bunch of black kids who are in African dress. And then it cuts to his backing band complaining that he's underpaying them. Um, and I'm thinking, is that meant to undercut it? Is it meant to say that in private, James Brown mm. sort of treats black people without the respect that he's... In, but I, I, I don't know because these things just sort of crash into each other rather than build. Yeah, yeah. There's no, um, and, and normally with those things, you'd you'd maybe see the the first shoots of a theme emerging, wouldn't you? And then you'd then you'd oh that confirms it, that confirms it as you then go through. But absolutely, I think they start and they stop in the moments that you've just described. Um, yeah, that suggests this, and that is all we're gonna say on that matter. And on this, we we're gonna show you this little uh, snippet. And we're gonna, and it's, it could suggest this, and it could suggest that, but actually, we're not gonna then reference it or or do something along that theme in the rest of the film. And so, you know, you come away from it and thinking, yeah, I, they could have built on that. They could have um, given given us a little bit more. Yeah. For all 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 with all with the end of getting to know James Brown, the the person, the the man. I think the his activism. I guess maybe the reason why they fudge it is that his political views were like hilariously all over the map in his real life. I think the the most characteristic part of James Brown's political life was when he campaigned at the 68 election for Hubert Humphrey. 
and a lot of people in the civil rights movement were disappointed and said you know come on the, this is a guy who's gonna like escalate the war in vietnam it's a guy who's mm. dragged his heels on president johnson's civil rights legislation you know why are you as a black man supporting him so brown then went and played nixon's inauguration which had them all going uh, when we said rethink what you're doing we didn't mean do something even worse that wasn't the path we intended yeah, it was it was an area he should have never been near. Um, you know, you 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 know, keep your genius in in your own field. Um, yeah, the, the 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 Nixon stuff, and and I think he I think he actually went on to to say that he had, he ended up losing a lot of his black fans. Um, yeah, I don't think and, it's and... coincidence that his like although his career was remarkably consistent and he never stopped touring and recording mm. that kind of early to mid 70s either was the like real fallow point of his career and of yeah. course when you look at a funk musician particularly one as influential as james brown you think the early to mid 70s weren't good for him yeah. really yeah. you know what yeah. better time is there for funk music so you think all right there's there's something else going on here and you're right it probably was the nicks and stuff yeah. yeah should we talk a bit generally about james brown about. I th- I, th- I think that'd be a great idea. Mm. I, I, I can I can and I and it's something actually. I, just before we started this, I, I thought I'm go- I'm going to have to admit this. And yeah, what it is is I came to this film knowing very little, if anything, about James Brown. I knew the name. I knew a handful of his songs, but that was it. Yeah, and as the and as the film went on, um, and like I, I like I've mentioned, I started to think oh, I want to know more. You know, more than the film was almost giving me at times. Hmm. Um, you know, I just wanted to 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 read a little bit more about things. Um, and so afterwards, I was I was doing some reading, and and even from the film itself, just get just really made me quite embarrassed to not know that much about him. I kind of came away going, how can you um, consider yourself someone with a wide range of, of, of taste in music and then not know a great deal about James Brown. Because even just whilst I was, you know, listening to, to songs in the film, um, listening to songs afterwards, I'm thinking you, you, I could hear different things. Like Red Hot Chili Peppers is, is one of my all-time favourite bands. I can hear some of the stuff that was in the film. And afterwards, I can hear some of that in the Red Hot Chili Peppers songs. And, and, then, I, and then you're starting to think, how 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 have you got us you know got to this stage with not knowing as as that much about James Brown and, and that was a that was an interesting question for me. It's funny, isn't it? I had a similar train of thought. I do like funk music a great deal. I think generally when I listen to seventies and sixties funk, I'm more likely to go for Betty Davis or Stevie Wonder mm. than uh, than I am Brown. And I was trying to think about why that is because that. That is strange, because when you think of funk music, you think of James Brown. You know, he invented it. He's the biggest figure in it by a mile. I was trying to think of why that is. I think it's, for me, it's because when I want to get into an artist, I want to listen to an album. I don't want to listen to a greatest hits compilation. I want an album. And Betty Davis has some fantastic albums. Stevie Wonder, of course, has some of the most acclaimed albums ever made. James Brown was just never that much of an album artist, I think. Yeah, 
yeah I, I, I can see that um I can see that and, and there's something in it as well in in that a lot of his work was was honing in on the genre of funk music as well wasn't mm. it you know it, it's not as if overnight he had the finished funk sound it, you know it's not like he went into his record company and went <laughs> now this is going to sound kind of odd to you at first but <laughs> bear with me bear with me <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely so I, I, th- I think i think there's i think actually james brown is is much better um, listening to from from beginning to end and how that how that sound changes and and how he he, he tinkers with it and how and how the music starts to starts to change it and then starting to see ah right okay i can see these bits mm. in um artist afterwards um you know the the temptations i absolutely love the temptations and you start to then see yeah some of the things that you know the temptations have and you can see the influence being drawn from from james brown and i and i think actually you're right as a as a as a he's got a, some great singles in there um as an album you probably don't get the true genius that is James Brown unless you listen more chronologically as to how the how the sound evolved and and went on. And I think the other thing, uh, I think there is a level of truth in that. I have great soft spot for James Brown's ballads like Lost Someone or Please, 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 which is played yeah. in this film. And you know, that was obviously a part of his work that became less central as it goes on. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that I think the core of James Brown as an artist is really expressed live. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the one album he has that has that kind of sort of songs in the key of life, what's going on kind of mm. reputation is Sex Machine, which is a double album and half of it is live. And that's where James Brown's genius really lives when he's on stage. Yeah, very good point, actually. That's one that I hadn't considered. Um, do you know what I found myself doing, actually? I, I, I found mm. myself thinking of an artist, a very similar period, Elvis Presley, for example. Mm. Who um, Brown was a huge fan of, by the way. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, I did I did see that as well. And and I I, I know about Elvis Presley and, and everything about him. I know his songs and, and all those type of things. And knowledge that wasn't gained through googling or having a look it's just that kind of knowledge that you pick up over years because everyone talks about him everyone still talks about him and everyone talks about in such glowing terms Hmm. and then i look at james brown who i think you could argue at the time was you know as big um and as influential in the in the in the music scene creates this this amazing genre of music in, in funk music and is credited as being some a massive influence in in uh, singers songwriters from that time onwards most notably uh, you know michael jackson as well when i was seeing yeah. james brown you know in the film some of the moves i'm thinking you know that reminds me of michael jackson and lo and behold when i do some research michael jackson names him as as his biggest idol yeah. So then I was thinking, well, if that's the case, and I'm, I'm comparing these two musicians side by side, why is it that I grow up knowing of, of Elvis Presley and, and and the things that go with Elvis Presley, but you know, very little of James Brown? It's funny that, isn't it? I think up until very recently, there just seemed to be some sort of transatlantic lag 
in terms of black culture that wasn't yeah. there in terms of the mainstream like i mean we've mentioned octavia spencer i remember hearing american friends talk about fruitvale station which she is absolutely superb in for about a year before i got the chance to see it over right. here and i was thinking if there was a, a similarly buzzed about american indie that starred amy adams or julianne Moore. I would not have to sit on my ass for a year waiting to see yeah. that. And that's I think a, that is that is only just being corrected. I think that it has only just got to this point where people have like got rid of this stupid idea that people in this country need some sort of a translator for black American culture. Yeah. 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 That it's just so alien that you wouldn't you wouldn't get it otherwise. Yeah. Mm. Ridiculous, um, but I, th I think there was something in that. I think I think that there is something in. Um, I mean, Rolling Stones, for example, put mm. him at, at number seven. I think in the greatest all-time artists. I think it is right. Um, and so I, 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 I saw that last night, and I'm thinking to myself, how how do I get to 30 years old, mm. and you know, only through watching Get On Up do I see. Um, James Brown and actually get an interest and start to to dig a little bit deeper. Um, I, sh I should from from somebody as influential as he was to music, be being exposed to that type of thing naturally as I was, say Elvis Presley. I think the the other thing, and it's the thing that kind of affects Elvis, although you know he managed to break through it a bit, is that in the fifties and early sixties artists albums were churned out on such a production line that usually mm. you've got like an album of good material that is spread over about three different albums that were released within 15 months of each other and it's just a, a ridiculous work rate some people managed to break through it you know mm. Marvin Gaye the Beach Boys they managed to get off that treadmill and make things that they could be more precise and artistically controlling over but yeah. for James Brown I don't think that was kind of really the point I think to go back to my earlier point, he would rather have the biggest tour of the year than have an album yeah. that, you know, Rolling Stone would put on their number one of the year. Yeah, yeah, feeding off the... I get the impression he, he, he used to feed off the audience, feed mm. off the the acoustics of the of the place he was, he was playing in and, you know, just all of that kind of just um, added to the energy of his performance. The other thing about his legacy that we haven't discussed is what an extraordinary influence he had on the birth of hip hop. Uh, because, yes. yeah, I am currently reading Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation by Jeff Chang, uh, which is firstly a fantastic book of social history. Like, even if you don't have any right. interest in any of the artists discussed there, it's such a great book about race and society in America over this kind of 1970s to 1990s period. But the thing that it emphasizes is that it wasn't really until hip hop had been around for a few years that anyone got the idea of creating a rap record. Originally, it was a live format. It was about DJs mixing together tracks in an unusual way. Maybe occasionally 
you know, someone would wrap over the top of it, but it wasn't the focus of it. And of course, that presents a problem because if you've invented a genre, there aren't really many discs that you can spin that fit into that category. Um, so they often used to go to James Brown and they went back to James Brown so much that one of the pioneers of hip hop, Curtis Blow, said, give it up or turn it loose by James Brown is the national anthem of hip hop. <laughs> it's like the, the, the absolute cornerstone of it, even though it itself is not a hip hop record. It was absolutely unthinkable to have a block party in New York in the 70s and not have that record on. <laughs> just a, just the the must have uh, any any such party a bit like um you'd go to a wedding and have <laughs> my way always on or, <laughs> or something like that <laughs> it had this weird effect too in Clyde Stubblebine his drummer who is like briefly seen in this film had probably the most famous moment of improvisation in musical history on one of Brown's B-sides. There is a James Brown B-side called The Funky Drummer, which, as the name suggests, is mostly a showpiece for Clyde mm. Stubblebine. And there is a particular uh, drum solo that he does towards the end, which once rap started to get out of the block parties and started to become an album medium and a single medium, people who were looking for a good beat to sample and rap over really fell on that. They realised that you could loop this thing and it sounded like hip-hop before hip-hop existed. The only problem was, was that at the time sampling existed in this complete legal limbo. So I, I assume it's changed now, but for like the first three or four years of this happening, Stubblebine wasn't actually seeing any money from it, uh, despite the fact that you could like turn on any urban radio station in America and you'd be hearing his drumming more likely than not. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and and that goes to our... Is, is James Brown referred to as the most sampled artist he is, yes. Ever. Yeah. yeah, I'd forgotten about yeah. that, and you can believe it, yeah. Yeah, just from what you're saying there, absolutely. Um, I can imagine he's, he's yeah, there's, I think there's, there's many a song where he's, he's um, sampled on, um, and I think even even towards the, the latter end of his career, he did uh, some work with artists, you know, mm. um, doing some duets and, and things like that. Yeah, it's an amazing career and it produced some amazing music. And I have to say, in the final analysis, without the music and a lot of the cast, uh, the film would just not have worked at all. But I think they combined to keep it about afloat. Yes, yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, um, Chadwick has, has, has an absolutely great lead that mm. you are drawn into um, throughout and and the music and just general interest in James Brown's story, um, the the person that you um, know as as one thing and understanding where he where he came from and and his roots, yeah, that's what pulls it through. The the rest of it, yeah, is a little bit mushy, isn't it? Well. Uh, that's about it from Pop Screen this week. But just a reminder that if you subscribe to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, among the many other goodies you can get is a monthly bonus episode. Until next week, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. 
I've been Ben. And we'll see you later.